0: Welcome everyone to Storytelling Podcast Week and our second session of our final day of the week, The Interview with David K. Barnes of Wooden Overcoats and Gabrielle Urbina of Wolf 359. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Storytelling Podcast Week is a week of live stream sessions like this one with narrative nonfiction podcasters, audio drama, and fiction podcasters from across our world and our imaginations. If you have a chance, check out the recorded episode showcase, featuring some exclusive and favorite episodes on the Storytelling Podcast Week channel from many of the podcasters participating. You can also replay the live streams from the week on the Storytelling Podcast Week podcast channel, so make sure to download the Podbean app and follow the channel to receive notifications in real time about the live streams and specially released episodes of the week. Storytelling Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean, We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience with Podbean Live, where podcasts come to life. For everyone listening, you can start your own live stream for free on Podbean. And to get your first 30 days of hosting for free, use the code STORY. And now we'll hand it off to our interviewers and interviewees. (laughs) Welcome, Gabrielle and David.
1: Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Hello. This is going to be
2: splendid. Yes. Um, So, David, we did not flip a coin about who would go first. So I am unilaterally deciding that I'm going to ask the first question, if that's okay.
1: Oh, certainly. No, I've got my first question uh, for you ready and primed as as well. Uh, Should we introduce ourselves as well? Well, well? I
2: was going my first question was going to be, uh, who are you? Um, Brilliant. What what would be the first paragraph of the Wikipedia article about you if you had to? Uh, come up with something for that right now.
1: I, f- I think the question, who are you, is the question that's most been asked of me to my face <laughs> throughout my life, um, to which the answer changes each and every time. For this particular session, uh, I am a, a writer based in in London, in the United Kingdom, uh, and through the world of podcasting, I'm probably best known for uh, cre- uh, creating and head writing, the podcast sitcom Wooden Overcoats about... Uh, the, cult favorite wooden the cult favourite Wooden Overcoats. Favorite, the cult classic, the underground cult classic Wooden Overcoats about rival funeral directors on a Channel Island. Uh, for audio, I've also written um, Doctor Who for Big Finish. Um, uh, I've written um, episodes of Outliers from Rusty Quill and the Historic war Palaces. I've uh, contributed odd scripts here and there, and I've done a great deal of script editing and consultancy, including... including on a wonderful little fantasy series called Unseen, created by some immensely talented people, uh, one of whom I hope is going to introduce himself now.
2: (laughs) Indeed I am. Um, Hello, my name is Gabriel Urbina. I am a Costa Rican-American podcasting writer and director and producer and, oh God, loads of other hats that get worn in the process of making shows. I am perhaps most well-known in the audio fiction community, um, some would say infamous, as the creator of Wolf 359. Um, And since then, I've also co-created three additional shows um, called Time Bombs, Zero Hours, and our latest show, an urban contemporary fantasy anthology series called Unseen, in which the wonderful Mr. David K. Barnes worked as not only our script editor for the whole series but also as the writer for one of our special episodes which we were very very grateful for David. And I very much
1: enjoyed uh, writing it and uh, having a taste of my own medicine uh, receiving notes asking me to clarify the plot which uh, (laughs) which I think I did a wonderful job in ignoring so that you could do it for me and I could take the credit. Tremendous relationship tremendous creativity from both sides. Uh, I've, I've actually got a question, uh, actually, it's a question uh, for you, Gabriel, I've been burning to ask. In fact, it's a question that's been put to me by several of our mutual acquaintances and friends and, and listeners. It um, is, where is the money that
2: I owe you? Is that it?
1: It's, it's not quite. It's, it's along those lines. Um, it is a question that needs to be asked, and I think this is the perfect public forum to ask it. It is, Gabriel, <laughs> an established fact that you are an immensely attractive man. Uh, the question oh is, how is it that you're so attractive? What is the secret? How do you do it? Because I need to, they need to know. They need to know. <laughs> and and uh, finally, finally, we can get the truth.
2: Um, well, I think that the key to it is you hang out in an audio-only format for as long as possible. And you actually okay. remove yourself from the spotlight as much as possible. You hide in the shadows. Thank you God. not only work in a medium where no one sees you, but you also do it in such a way where you are writing words that other people speak for you. You are yes. speaking through sound effects, you're speaking through music, you are doing all of these things to just remove yourself from the equation as possible. And thus just maintain a their
1: imagination.
2: That's right, that's right. A veneer of mystique. Uh, it's the only way that we get by.
1: I would I would say that your veneer of mystique is the most captivating that I've yet to come across in my several <laughs> decades this earth. So you have not pull that off immaculately. Absolutely.
2: Well, David, let's talk about the mystique that surrounds you, actually. Um, how did your um, misadventures in the world of audio fiction begin? Like, What set of decisions led you to working first on overcoats and then on all of these many, many other things that um, you have been doing over these past few years? So I'll
1: be segueing into, into relevant territory here. I like it. <laughs> uh, and the answer to that, to try and shorten that, can I? I don't know. Let's ramble. Let's see where this goes. I, um, uh, I used to do a great deal of work in theatre, student theatre in Edinburgh. I went to the University of Edinburgh. Uh, I was an intemporary, uh, in fact, of uh, both uh, uh, Felix Trench and Elizabeth Campbell. Both work on uh, the wooden overcoats uh uh podcast Felix as is, a is, uh, co-creator and and rudyard fun elizabeth as production manager and i used to do a lot of plays and comedy, so I used to write plays plays that we which would be unfit for people of a nervous disposition plays that that deserve to be kept locked in in the desk <laughs> where they will remain but i did stage and i did direct them uh to i really have also my...
2: i <laughs> have also worked in that genre of theater the completely secret <laughs> yes. genre of theater
1: So Cutting Our Teeth, Nobody Else Needs to Know, and yet it was so very public at the time. Uh, And then through that, I I, I wrote uh, a short audio piece, about six episodes, um, a sort of a comedy detective show. Most comedy writers, if given their very first radio audio project, will do comedy detectives. I've seen that. It's happened everywhere. I did it. It's a wonderful thing to do. And through that, and that was made a few times, um, and I was just dabbling in audio, really. And then suddenly um, I used to live with Felix Trench in, in Brixton in London. And, uh, you know, he just came in one day um, into the living room. I just had a shower. I, I wasn't dressed, but I'd have a dressing gown. And that's a crucial fact for the story. He mm-hmm. came in and said, um, we've got this, me and, me and this chap, Tom Crowley, very nice, very nice man of uh, between medium and, and high height, wonderful blonde hair, who said, blondly, we had this wonderful idea for uh, a show. Would you be able to create it for us, and we'll work together? And could you come up with scripts and stuff and all this? And I had nothing to do. I was unemployed, as I was perpetually
2: unemployed then, and said yes. Uh, okay. So often, a key component to starting your career f- in audio I, fiction, I, I, the okay, unemployment,
1: f- very much. It's it's the need for for the money, which is a tremendous incentive, uh, and and yet one continually frustrated um, because it isn't there. But we did create somehow uh, the first season of wooden overcoats create, uh, pulling together wonderful, wonderful uh, uh, two producers, John and Andy, a tremendous cast of, of, of actors uh, and musicians and all sorts of people. Uh, it was very much a, well, let's see where we go and how this happens. And they knew far more about podcasting than I did, and most people know far more about podcasting than I do, and I was just there for the ride. And we created this show, and it sort of spiraled from there. Uh, and then, of course, when I was doing this, I thought, oh, my God, it's entirely possible that nobody else, that nobody else, in this, the year of our law, 2015, has done this before. Let's, you let's might be the first that. one. Might be the very first to do an audio fiction podcast. It turns out that we were beaten to that many times over. But among, among the many people who beat us to it was, was, was yourself and your own uh, wonderful creative colleagues, uh, Sarah Shackett and Zach Valenti, with whom you've done tremendous work. I did want to ask you, because I don't think it is actually something I've ever asked you despite knowing you for, for you know, several decades now, let's say. Um it isn't true, but I want to say it. Where did We 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 <laughs> Yes, <laughs> we met when we were toddlers, Infants. apparently. <laughs> um where did uh again for yourselves, um audio, how, where, why, what,
2: and who? Uh well, in my case it was absolutely a set of um misadventures and piteous overthrows. Um mm-hmm i um came to the united states to study university i got a degree in film which is my first great love and the ambition of my life Mm. is to one day work in film Mm. and do things in film yeah um and so as you do when you graduate from a liberal arts university with a degree in film you i moved to los angeles thinking this is going to be a breeze i'm going to get a job and we're gonna make some movies um And I, in fact, did neither of those things. I found the doors to the film industry slammed shut on my face. Um, (laughs) And the problem was I discovered that I had no money and I had no ins. And the way that a lot of people go about... Solving those problems is kind of slaving away for many years in jobs that are adjacent to the film industry and kind of slowly picking their way at the wall until finally there's a crack that's big enough for them to slip in. Um, but I sort of had this very real hunger, this very real kind of need to, I don't want to do that. I want to be cutting my teeth. I want to be getting better. I want to be telling stories. I want to be writing things I wanna be producing them. And gosh, I wish that there was a way to do that quickly. I wish there was a way to do that um, at a price point that I can pay right now. I wish that there was a way of making these stories accessible to a group at large. Um, And I wish that I was someone that then the next step in my mind was, ah, I will create a podcast and do it. Um, Instead, it was much more of a like, if only there was a way to do this, there just is not let me listen to another episode of Night Vale to drown my sorrows that this does not exist. Um, And I spent a good deal of time in that state before finally an idea came into my head of this character sitting alone on a space station, listening to sound Mm. and kind of getting involved in a story about strange transmissions that were coming from a mysterious origin point. Mm. And something in my brain went, oh, that's lovely and interesting and vivid. And I think it wants to be sound only. I don't know where the instinct came from, but there was this sense of, I think this wants to live in a sound only landscape. I don't think this wants to be a film. I don't think this wants to be a play. I think it wants to be a podcast. Mm. Um, And uh, enough of my friends encouraged me, much to their detriment and the way we went. And we haven't looked back eight years later.
1: I was going to say, because this was, of course, um, Wolf 359, which went on for... Four seasons, uh, a, a tremendous right. number of episodes, full-length episodes <clears throat> and mini-episodes, um, and a tremendous achievement. You know, it's, it's, I'm not sure if you've counted up how many minutes of,
2: of, of the show exist cumulatively. Uh, I should imagine it's substantial. We um, did once, and I think that it was over a full day of listening. I think yes. that we had crossed the barrier where you could no longer listen to the entire series in just in one day.
1: One day. So this is it's, it's a substantial achievement, and and the show which um, I was going to ask uh, also on on this show, it has is, is developed. The scope of it changes over time, and at the very beginning of the series, it has a very small, you know, it's a very small cast and a small group of characters, uh, and then by the second season, you know, for the most part, it really is only a, very much a handful. By the second season, we introduce you know one, one more who's there for a great deal, and then there's some mini episodes hint at other things. By the third, we're getting more. At the very beginning of the show, however, did, did you know what you were doing? It's a, it's a very important question. Did you know what you were doing? What was your vision with the scope? Was it being made up as you went along? Was there an overarching idea where you might get to eventually? How much of this has been
2: made up on the spot? Well, in all the ways that matter, we did not know what we were doing. Not at all. <laughs> um, and I tell people, I think that if you... I can barely listen to Wolf 359 Season 1 nowadays, but... <laughs> For those of you who can do it, and if you do listen to it, I think that you hear us learning how to make a podcast in real time. You kind of hear the growth. And I think that by the time that we got to the second season, it's a little bit better shaped. It's a little bit better formed. We had a better sense of what we were doing. Mm -hmm. Um, But in that first season, you hear us getting better at the writing, you hear us getting better at the editing, you hear us getting better at the performance, at the storytelling, sometimes episode by episode, if not minute by minute, hmm. um, as we made that show. Um, what, what in terms of,
1: um, I was going to say, what sort of, um, uh, what were some of the early lessons, I guess? Maybe, uh, especially as a writer, what were some of those early lessons you picked up through doing it, through sort of like hitting the ground running and seeing where it went? What, what, what things you, you quickly worked out how
2: to do or how not to do? In many ways, we were figuring out how much we needed to stick to a format and how much we could deviate from it. And this is, I think, kind of the delicate dance that any fiction show, especially a serial one, kind of has to engage with, of kind of how much do you vary and how much do you repeat. Um, And I think that if you listen to that first season, we had come in with this very, very strong constraint of this is a group of people that are stuck on a space station and everything that we hear is audio diaries that they make. And that's it. Nobody else can show up and nothing can happen except what they put into their audio diaries. Um, And what happens of course, is that instantly by episode four, we are clawing at the walls because we are immediately drawn towards, oh my God, we really want to introduce more people into the setting. We want to kind of widen the canvas. And oh my God, we want to tell stories that are not constrained by the diary format. And it took us a lot of time to actually work up the nerve to do that. It took us a lot of time to kind of go, oh, we can allow ourselves to do this. The show can exist outside of these patterns. The show can continue beyond the initial conception of Mm. what it is. Um, I think that that was one of the biggest lessons that we learned, aside from just, oh, God, what is audio mixing? How does that work? What 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 does it mean for the audio to be peaking? Oh, good lord! Yeah, um, all of those very valuable lessons, yeah. although perhaps a little bit more tangible than that delicate art of how do you balance the formalities of the storytelling?
1: I think because I, whilst I'm I used to direct theatre, but I, I've never really directed audio. I've only in, in audio I've always remained as very much writer. Uh, or script editor, consultants, occasionally actor, though very, very rare. No, but
2: David, that's, that's the fun part. That's, <laughs> that's, that's the actual fun, interesting part. I was gonna The writing you're... is terrifying. The directing oh, yes. is fun.
1: I was going to ask, because yes, I've never directed, but uh, you, you, you have, you, you regularly uh, direct, um, and often uh, you know, uh, Sarah and Zach will also direct as well. Um, how does the fact that you are wearing many hats in the process of making a show, whereas for myself, I concentrate very much in the one area, I have an awareness of the rest of it. I'm often involved in production angles all over the place, but my real job is just in one place. You've got so many hats. How does that help, or is, is it in any way a detriment, to creating and assembling a show, not just the first, but also all the ones you've done since?
2: Well, I mean, it helps because you can make the show. Yes. Um, you know, it is very easy to kind of get stuck in this place of, oh, I would make this show that is the song of my soul if only I had an editor and the producer and the director and the publicist to make it happen.
0: Yes. I don't
2: have these people, um, so therefore they will, the show will not happen. Um, I had done very, very little of any of those things when I started Wolf 359, and I started doing those things out of necessity. Um, and I think that I will be the first person to tell you that um, you can kind of see how some of those things are things that I'm much more passionate about based on the quality <laughs> of the work that they did there. Uh, we always said that marketing and publicity was the last thing on anyone's mind when we were making Wolf 359, and we languished in complete obscurity for the first two years of the show. Really? Um, but it's in terms very, of... It's, it's very hard to believe in
1: retrospect, because it is such a, a, a sort of totemic show on the, on the, sort of the audio drama landscape. But uh, you said it, it, it took a while for the audience to build.
2: Well, for a time, we were really... The, the recurring joke was that we were making a show for me and Zach Valenti, the lead actor, uh, for the two of our mothers, um, <laughs> when they had time. Yeah. Uh, and every now and then, they would sort of tell us, oh, I got a little bit busy this week, I needed to do laundry, and so they hadn't listened <laughs> to the latest episode, and that was it. Um, in a way, though, it was freeing. It was wonderful, because there wasn't yet this pressure of you're dealing with the audience's expectations, and so we mm-hmm. could do... Strange things with the format. We could do a little bit of experimentation. We could do things that were funny and interesting and exciting to us without also juggling what are all the things that we think an audience is expecting and demanding from this show. Of course. Um, Now, to get back to your original question about the different hat wearing, Mm. um, I think that the main thing that you have to do is that you can only wear one hat at a time. And I think that that is always something that I both struggle with and really kind of force myself to do of kind of when I am the writer of an episode, I am focusing on all of the lines need to fit in the right way and the scene description needs to be evocative and beautiful and all of this needs to be over here and the transitions need to be described in this way. And the moment that I put on my director's hat, all of those things all of a sudden are so cross-outable. Anything of that can just like leave the page in a moment. Lines will be cut. Uh, things will be changed around uh, because you're no longer wearing that hat. You're no longer prioritizing the things that you prioritize as a writer. You're now prioritizing... What does the actor need to be on the page in order to do their job properly? What information do they need? What information do they not need? What's getting in their way? Um, And you can't do that job accurately if there's still that part of you that is kind of going, no, but I loved that description. That description was so lovely and I spent so long doing it. It must be in there. If that part of you is clawing at the wheel of the car, sooner or later you're going to veer into the side of the mountain and go over the cliff and nothing is going to happen. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, you kind of have to be very, very cognizant about not only what are your hats, but also when are you taking them on and when are you putting them back on. Mm.
1: No, It's a, it's a very, very important point. It's a, it's something I've, I, think it, I, I suppose it, there's a sense of relinquishing control to yourself as opposed to, to somebody else. Like the writer is still there in you, but you're going to shut up that part of your brain and concentrate on the different job, um, hoping, that, hoping and telling yourself, that you are the safe pair of hands for the other person's work, who's also you.
2: Yes. Now, David, I want to ask you about something that is related to this, mm. um, because you are the not only the writer of Wooden Overcoats, but also the head writer. You yes. are in charge every season of a small army of mm. writers that come together to make the show happen. They pitch ideas to you. You decide which of those ideas kind of are gonna make it into the show. You are the ultimate arbiter of what is overcoats and what is not overcoats. Um, can you talk, as much as you're able, because I know that this is a little bit of an amorphous process, and it might be one of those things that you have to see it before you know it, yeah. but what makes for a good idea of a Wooden Overcoats episode? What makes for a good concept for an episode? what's how do you kind of identify something that is within the parameters of your show
1: it's it's a tricky one it's one that we you know always try to develop even from that first season because at the very beginning you know one of the things that was attractive to having a team of writers again i and i'd never done that before i'd only ever written scripts by myself occasionally i'd co-written a script but i'd never been in a position of authority over a team of writers um and uh, to, and to and to do it, to even get the confidence. I read, uh, I, I think, reread um, Russell T Davies' book on uh, being a script editor for Doctor Who, uh, which is a terrifying, terrifying read if you are a writer, uh, but has many, many uh,
2: helpful hints and tips, such as don't. It at least uh, 20% a vivid description of every panic attack that he had over the course of a year. Very much. Uh, and
1: a lot of it is about how he deals with other scripts, you know, developing ideas and then something. Well, an idea might fall through because of a, a budget constraint and he has to tell the writer, I'm sorry, we can't do any of that, but can we do this instead? Um, for for Wood and um quite early on, and then certainly as the seasons went on, uh, the first thing to look at is, you know, do we have enough plots which are in any way to do with funerals? It is a Situation of the Week series. Um, it is a show which has ca- character arcs and sort of story arcs that go across a season, quite likely, usually a few things peppered throughout, but then get resolved maybe in the last one or two episodes. Otherwise, it's a kind of situation of the week. Here is our episode. This is the one about uh, Antigone and the Reverend write erotic literature. This is the episode about fun funerals have to uh, win a competition by burying uh, a seagull. Um, and those are the stories. Um, I always want a story that is very entertaining. If it makes people laugh in the room when you say it uh, and you can Im- immediately imagine the comic possibilities of that. Um, I I always you know that that's fantastic I used to always tell my writers especially early on and many of the writers who I approached for the show in the inception inception were playwrights uh, like myself many of whom hadn't had experience in uh, comedy let alone audio but I said I want this to be it is a sitcom but it's a character based sitcom it is rooted in characterization and character motivations it's rooted in all the motivations uh, that motivate uh, propel dramatic characters if the stories that we have have got a really interesting dynamic at the center, some kind of push and pull or a, or a dramatic struggle of a sort, we can add the jokes later. We can make it funny even later, but it's got to have a really good story to, to push it onwards.
2: The um, engine needs to be there.
1: Very much. Uh, it was always about constructing that engine for each episode and ensuring that it wasn't just a collection of jokes thrown together, it had to be a good storyline. Um, uh, and because you know it is also a Britcom, and therefore uh, tends every episode tends to involve failure for our protagonists. Uh, it is about a sort of one-sided rivalry. Our main characters, uh, Rudyard and Antigone, um, in at fun funerals. Their assistant Georgie tend to uh, have ambitions beyond their ability, or they're trying to beat their opponent, or something of this nature. Um, mm-hmm. So it very, it was a combination of: do we have the right engine for a story? Does it feel does it feel like it's part of the world? It doesn't necessarily have to have a funeral component, but that's always a bonus. Uh, the best, you know, a lot of the best stories are in, it, somehow to do with undertaking or, or, funerals or death or something of that route. And the other is, does it have enough for the characters to do? Um, is there a good reason why the actors are turning up to work today? Have you have you done that in your script? Have they got enough to do and say? Um, sometimes, in the, especially the very early days, I get storylines where half the characters, you know, I always said. At the bare minimum, Rudyard, Antigone, Georgie and their rival Eric all have to be in the episode. We always have the narrator, Madeline, who is a mouse, um, who can or who can A be very articulate together. mouse. An articulate mouse who is writing a Sunday Times bestseller. That's why these stories are being told to us. Uh, and Madeline can be involved in the action as a mouse or doesn't have to be. They're certainly narrating it. But you do have to have the four main characters. And some of the early storylines that I received didn't have. Half of them weren't there at all, and we had to find a way to put them in. Um, And some of the episodes which I think were the most difficult to develop were those which either didn't have enough for all four to do, and you were trying to find reasons why they're involved, or stories which were far too weighted towards one specific character, and the others didn't have anything to do. It was all right if you have a story which is, say, Antigone needs to invent um, chocolates for the spurious reason I've invented. But the other characters <laughs> need, what's their involvement with that? And one is, you know, Rudyard uh, isn't being very supportive, but, you know, has to be involved in the tasting of them. Uh, Eric is also creating chocolates as well. So there's a rivalry there. Um, Georgie didn't need as much to do in that one because it came after a Georgie centered episode. So we could sort of give Kira uh, Baxendale, the actor, like a, a morning off. But, um, it was, it, was, it, was a, it was a juggling of characters. It's a juggling of incident and events. Uh, at the end of the day, it has to be funny. Um, it, it can make you cry as well. It can, or it can make you seive with anger at what the characters are doing. But it must also be funny. Uh, and uh, comedy has many different roots, as we know. Um, and what makes me laugh as a head writer isn't necessarily what makes an audience laugh. But I thought, well, that's the only thing I can stick down. Does it make me laugh? And if it does, we'll go through with it and we'll hope that the others do. And that's why we do the read-throughs with the cast and the producers and they can tell me, David, this isn't funny. What have you done? What have you done with <laughs> our budget? And then we will, we will amend it. All the scripts go through many rounds of tweaking and discussion before we record them. Uh,
2: now, I want to talk for a moment about this juggling act that you are doing as you are juggling coming up with a good engine and coming up with compelling reasons for all the characters to be there and com- juggling with all the different ways in which you have to make something funny. Where does all of this happen? Like, Where physically do you do your writing? Is there a specific spot that you go to in order to make it happen? Do you have a routine? Just kind of like, how do you out here in the real world attack the process of making your imagination live on the page?
1: I think like like many writers, I I hate working. And so it's really (laughs) difficult. To find a writing time. I remember I, I, uh, when I, I studied uh, an MA uh, uh, in, in, in writing for life performance, and um, the, the, the tutor there said, It is amazing as writers if you are sat there and you've got a deadline. How suddenly very important it is to do all the housework and spring cleaning and washing up in your flat before you even sit down to tackle it. All those jobs you've been putting off, you suddenly are raring to do as soon as you need to actually sit down and do some work. Of course, of course. Very true for me. And I have to say, I've been writing now. uh, I mean, I've been writing now for quite a long time, but I've been writing as my basic sole means of income uh, for around about three or four years. And in that time, I have still not come up with a, uh, a a specific process, a specific schedule, a specific way. I'm constantly inventing, reinventing, throwing things out. Um, I used to find that if I-
2: You old perfectionist you. Indeed, you're just trying to find the best one.
1: I'm saying,
2: you know, for a long time,
1: I couldn't uh, write indoors. I had to write outside. I then couldn't write in the flat. Um, so I would often uh, try to go to the library. Um, uh, and, and work there but then I even found that was a bit too much some sort of hassle or there wasn't you know and, or there wasn't enough you know I, I resented the fact because I was drinking a lot of tea and obviously I had to pay for it quite rightly really but I wanted I wanted my own tea at home and so I've tried to work at home um, and then of course over the last couple of years I've been forced to work indoors in in my own yes plan. what I find in general is that uh, but, lib- you know, we do have, we do have a, a sort of spare bedroom in this, which can be used as an office space. And sometimes silence is very necessary. I do need silence. I will often speak out loud. I'll speak my dialogue out loud. When I'm fine tuning a script, I will read all the, di- I'll take every character, like say Rudyard or Antigone or Georgie, and read all of their dialogue in a row in an approximation of their voice um, to make sure it sounds consistent. So I, I speak out loud to myself. So I kind of need to be by myself in silence. I need a huge, long uh, uh, space in which to pace. I do a lot of my work pacing because um, mm-hmm. I can never come up with ideas otherwise. Um, it used to be I could only write at night. Uh, most of season one of Wanova Overcoats was written between 8 p.m. 3 a.m. of every night. Uh, partly because I was at work. I was working in a perfume shop uh, at the time and, and in, re- in retail. I didn't have time to write in the day. Uh, over the last few years, I've tried to make it more social and hospitable hours. I try to write in the day, um, but I I still don't have, I don't, I do not have a schedule uh, to to write. I cannot help you. I was gonna ask for your advice on this. Do you have, or did you have before, before these dark days of COVID, did you have a a method, a full, you know, uh, tried and tested method to impart to me and all our, our listeners and other writers? You know, I
2: did, and I quite liked it. Um oh, you and I, mourn, I knew you did. I, I, I knew I
1: you I
2: mourn it because, it because I no longer have it. Of course. Um, you but no, my um the sort of big thing for me was for whatever reason, very early on in my university days, my brain really clamped down on I cannot work in the space in which I live. Mm-hmm. Um I need to go somewhere. Um, in university, it was the library. In Same, yes. more recent times, it's mostly been coffee shops and sort of places around the city. Um, and that was always sort of something that was very, very important for me, of kind of the physical act of we are going somewhere. We are taking mm. a small physical journey to go to a place, and that gives it a sense of purpose. That gives it a sense of weight. Um, it also in a way gives it a time limit because sooner or later the library closes or the coffee shop closes. There is this sense of, no, you actually cannot be up until five in the morning writing this. The time that you have to write this is constrained, which I think helps with that sense of, oh, I'm suddenly very attracted to doing all the housework that I have around the house. If you can't do that because you are somewhere, that helps a lot. Um, Now, mind you, This has all been completely turned against me in the times of COVID because it means that I'm now completely at the mercy of trying to do some work while I'm at home because we've all been in lockdown and my brain going, no, what are you talking about? We don't, we don't work here. Come on, let's go on a little walk and go find a coffee shop and go sit down. And I keep going, "No, no brain, we can't do that. We have to do the work here. And it is a petulant toddler and it refuses to engage for many, many, many hours. Um, but, yeah, but I did kind of find that the routine and the actions and just kind of not only doing the work but bookending it with specific physical activities um, mm. was really, really helpful in kind of getting the brain to engage with the writing itself.
1: Yeah, I, I found um, I, I was trying to give myself a shift. So I'd, I'd sort of say I would write between 10 o'clock and 1 o'clock. And I'd usually put an internet blocker. On, on the laptop, mm-hmm. so I could just concentrate and then I'd work again for maybe three until six or half six and then at least that would be and I give myself a few hours I find that I just don't in the early afternoon around lunchtime I just do not focus on anything I can't focus I. that's when I'll tend to go for a walk or I'll sit around and read a book or I'll stare at the wall and say what am I doing with my life but, but so those hours are very precious but I try to keep apparent about sort of some three-hour shifts where I just sit there and work if I can I say that I, I often I often overshoot them or I miss or for whatever reason. Uh, I was going to ask, in fact, um, it sounds like you're talking about sort of, you know, the library closes and therefore you've got to end. Um, most writers, of course, do find deadlines uh, incredibly inspiring, and conducive to getting the work done. Are, are you a, a driven by deadlines man? Are you somebody who, who struggles to sit down and get it done until the cruel hand of fate is beckoning you towards the morning where it needs to be finished?
2: You know, for a long time, I would have said yes. Um, and I've recently been discovering that I think that it's something even worse. I think that it's something even more petty. Um, I think that there's something about my brain that really, really struggles with writing something where it is not going to be produced, where there isn't kind of this sense of, after I write it, there is going to be a next step and it is going to be going somewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I think is why I really, really struggled with. I think that I've been, you know, saying that during my off time, I'm trying to write a film script for about four years now. Um, And it's never happened because, um, and there have even been times when I've kind of given myself deadlines and I've even kind of involved other people in sort of telling me, Uh, no, 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 actually by this date, you need to give this to me or something bad will happen. But I found it just so hard to kind of write something when there isn't kind of a palpable sense of, oh no, and at a certain point, the hat will change. The writer will go out and something will come in. And it doesn't necessarily have to to be me that is doing the next step. Mm. But there does have to be kind of the sense of there will be continuity past this. Um, and obviously deadlines are an important part of that because if you don't have them, that process can't ever really happen. Yes. Um, but yeah, but I think that there is something palpable about this yeah. that my brain really, really kind of craves and seeks. Um, and again, and that's part of, that's, that's the very DNA of why I was attracted to the audio medium. The fact that mm. you can tell stories here quickly and effectively and um, without necessarily having to spend four years making them.
1: Yes, that was something that we found with, um, you know, one reason we created wooden overcoats was a frustration that we were all, as actors and writers and, and everyone try, struggling to, to to get into what seemed like quite a closed shop, even in uh, radio in, in, in the UK. And, um, uh, and uh, you know, m- many of my friends who had uh, even created uh, works on radio and certainly television talked at the many years it would take to get something done. Whereas wooden overcoats, you know, we, we found that I think we, we we would first discuss the idea. In November of 2014, and by that same point, the following year, we had created, written, cast, produced, and released eight half hours of material, which we were very which is unreal,
2: do. which is and absolutely unreal. It's
1: just something which, and I had never, you know, seen. And 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 the other thing is, uh, I discovered, you know, having a, a, an online audience. That, um, you know, it took a little while for the audience to find it. I, was, I think by the end of season one. A couple of uh, some UK newspapers had picked up on us and, and done small fe- small features on us, which helped to generate suddenly you know a, a larger audience. And suddenly mm-hmm. you're, you know thinking you know an episode of the show in its first day will have had more downloads and hopefully listens than say a, a play of mine will have had over an entire two week run over you know every night absolutely. And I suddenly thought, you know, this is, and, you know, and, and, and plays especially take huge budgets, even small plays, mm-hmm. to get onto. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to, I don't know anything about um, rehearsal space and performance space in places like Los Angeles and New York. Certainly in, in London, it's very expensive to put on any sort of play in, in terms of venue hire. And, and of course, paying for your actors, designers, and producers, it, it, it's a huge thing. Obviously, podcasts as well. There are budgets, and it, but but they are still smaller than a Stena stage play, and, and of course substantially smaller than a TV show would do. And there's a certain amount, you know, in the same way that we we probably don't make as much, and um, and be, you know it's, sometimes it'd be tricky to pay ourselves. You still can also create your own timeline, and you can yes. design and create and release an entire season of program um, within a year. And, and so this was for me just eight half an hours. I know for like Wolf. Um, you know, both seasons are much longer. Uh, you know, that you, you say, create an astonishing amount of material, and I think it's that, you know you've, you've always tried to create a new show, a new season of material, like one a year. It's it's a almost a punishing schedule that you've still managed to up, up, uphold um, through your many other sh- shows, including Time Bombs and Zero Hours and Unseen. Uh, I actually... just
2: love punishment, David. I just yes. I crave it. I need it in my life. but Yes.
1: Well, I'm glad you finally admitted it, because this is an intervention.
2: Um, I, this is the <laughs> oh, I've been, misread- I've been misreading the title of this event for for weeks it's, now. It's, it's the, the intervention. intervention. Guys. I see. I you, see. Got We're
1: all here for you. Could, you. could you please just take a day off? For God's sake, man. <laughs> um, I was going to ask, actually, you know, because this is um, Beyond the Wolf, which I think to finish, it was, I think 20, 2017 was season 3. 2017 four, is when it wrapped up, yes. Um, but you've obviously gone on to, with uh, Sarah and Zach to uh, to create and make other, other shows. How do you decide upon a new project? How do you decide upon, this is the project we're going to make. This is the one we're now going to spend a year or half a year or whatever our time on. What, what's the process of there? This is the next golden ticket for a show.
2: Well, there's kind of two halves to it. Um, one part of it is kind of it has to pass the creative checklist. Um, And, you know, um, I should preface this with um, Zach, Sarah, and I are the kinds of people that we are routinely just kind of both as games amongst ourselves and for various kind of opportunities that come up, we have created a vast amount of concepts and ideas for shows that now all kind of live in our drawer. Um, And just kind of gestate there until they finally kind of bubble up to the surface. Um, But periodically we do kind of go to the drawer and sort of try to decide we have a little bit of time and a little bit of energy this year. What is the thing that we're going to make?
0: Mm. And at
2: that point it needs to pass two checklists. One is kind of the creative checklist, which is, is this a series that feels like a challenge, but also a challenge that we could do? Is it something that feels appropriately ambitious? Does it feel like it is out of our reach, but only just so, so that we have to kind of grow a little bit of storytellers to get it, Um, but not so far away that we will just fall and land on the ground face first. If we try to go after it, Mm -hmm. Um, does it have heart? Does it have an interesting formal component? And, sort of that final, very amorphous quality of, is it something where we have an idea of what the show is, but we also have the sense that it can surprise us? Um, Is it recognizable without being predictable um, to our own kind of heads? Um, And, you know, right now we're working on a new thing about which I can say absolutely nothing other than we have now been kind of working on it for a little while. And we thought that we had gotten to this place of, we know what this is. We know how it works. We know how it moves. And then today in conversation, we discovered an entire new facet of it that kind of went, made us go, Oh, this has always been here. This has always kind of been a part of the landscape in the back of our minds without us even realizing it. But today it surprised us and we realized it was here. Um, And finding ideas that kind of are able to do that is one of the things that makes us excited to do them. Um, And then, of course, the other checklist is just a matter of what is feasible and what is producible. What is something that we can make ourselves? Um,
1: Yes, I would say, because this is, uh, uh, you know, the the, the sensible ideas of creating a podcast is to create something. People are always saying audio is an intimate medium. Um, and uh, sometimes that that phrase means something and sometimes it, it, it doesn't but you know one I have
2: I have a long-standing enmity with that phrase you know
1: yeah it, it's it's a it can be a useful one but it's something which uh, one of the things it can mean is is a smaller cast because you know that is a, a, an easy way to get a show off the ground yeah for, I mean for wooden overcoats I think there's something to there is something to the idea of not knowing what you're doing and being almost unaware of what should be problems, and a steamrolling ahead and doing them anyway. There is, mm-hmm. there is, I would never give any writer the advice of, oh, you're creating something for audio, brilliant. Uh, what you want is as many characters as you can fit in, let's say 25. and <laughs> Loads of different right. scenes and all over the place. And But you know, that's something we would know, an overcoat season one, has about 25 characters, 25 actors, I think. I can't remember exactly off the top of my head. Um, and we just sort of went at it. Uh, and created all these sort of supporting characters, and then tried to keep them going for the future. I find myself now, when I'm creating new shows, being much more sort of like scale back, and trying to come up with things that can be done with a cast of three or four, and struggling, honestly. I, I find it very difficult to come up with something. I, I keep wanting to create more worlds like Piffling Vale in Overcoats, which have lots of different facets to them. I think, oh, I can do a story over there, and I can go over there. Whereas the sort of the slightly neater conception of, say, something like Wolf uh, 359 of a few characters in a space, I find very difficult, despite being, uh, I, I suppose, my background is in theatre. Even, even, to be honest, even then at student theatre, I used to write plays with about sort of, 20 people in them just to try and give everybody a part and then see where it went, which uh, makes it very difficult to get any of my work on now.
2: Um, But but it's interesting because even Wooden Overcoats and kind of all of its sprawling large cast glory is a contained show. It is a show Mm -hmm. that is set entirely in a very, very small island where all of the locales and all of the people have a commonality. Mm -hmm. Um, It is not a show where, you know, one moment you could be in Egypt And then the next scene, you might be in Russia. And then the next scene, you might be in Australia, 200 years into the future. Um, Which I have seen folks try to um, do something like that. And it can be done, but it is a little bit leaning against the way that audio wants to be. Because it is kind of asking to be big and sprawling and majestic in a medium that kind of really, really benefits from, no, we're going to focus in and we're going to be tight and tiny and really zoomed in.
1: Yeah, just, I think um, I mean, one of the things I found with audio, one thing I've actually found uh, uh, tricky in general after trying to come up with other projects beyond Wooden Overcoats is that Wooden Overcoats gave me such freedom to do whatever I wanted. It is a show that's kind of catered towards my own comic tastes and sensibilities. But it also has one of the jokes we came up with very early on was an island which is supposedly a mile wide in any given direction but also has an impossible number of amenities and things and safari Absolutely. parks and mountains and woods. And, you know, some people said, this is impossible. None of this could fit. I went, well, I suppose it couldn't. And then carried on doing it. And I loved that sort the, of making it up.
2: The space station on Wolf 359 was exactly the same way. Um, <laughs> and it was both sprawling and monstrously large with exactly as many rooms as were needed to hold whatever oddities the characters were finding that week, yeah. but also small enough so that people could show up exactly when they needed to be um, in different places at different times.
1: This is yeah. something that I think audio very much helps is that it, it, it's so long as everything feels right. Um, sometimes so long as things happen that people want to happen. Like you know, I, I think if we said let's do an episode or let's do an episode set on the top of a you know, or let's say an episode in the middle of a very uh, of, of a wood or a forest. So some people might say, but there's no room on the island for a forest. We would say, but we want one, don't we? We want to have the story in the for- forest. Forest, yeah. There shall be one? a forest, and there will be one. And so we have an episode at Rajard leading some scouts into a small but incredibly dense wood, and we can do that half-hour episode because ultimately there's the rule of would it be cool to do it. And if, and if we did, would people enjoy it? If the answer is yes, then you can move heaven and earth to make that happen. Or in this case, we just do it. And nobody's really going to question it. And I think audio gives a, an extra license to that because you can't see it and you're imagining it. Almost the, the boundaries of what is can and can't happen tend to blur. And I think that's something where audio is an immensely freeing medium, even beyond the usual things of, oh, well, you know, you know the, the pictures are cheaper on audio. You can have explosions and you, all this and that, the other thing. I think there's a there's a sort of creative freedom to you just you can't see it it's out of sight therefore anything can be happening and we can fit all these things in and it and it's easier to create those the rules of your world in a way which could be slightly trickier in, in a screen medium.
2: Um, now, David, uh, we are running out of time, but I do to want to ask you minutes, something yeah. before we completely run out of time. Since you were talking about freedom of imagination and the ability to create and the ability to set the rules of your own world. Um, I'm going to ask you to just do all of that for me Um, because the question was poised to us by the good folks at Podbean, and I really, really love this, of if you had to create a show for me to write, what would that show be? Um, If you had to kind of give me a show to run, Yes. Um, what would you give me?
1: Well, I had two. I did think of this, and I came up with two. One is something which I've noticed particularly in your writing, and particularly I noticed when doing uh, when script editing, uh, unseen, and some of the scripts in there, and the way that you write, and the sorts of stories you like. I know that you're very drawn to people who can weave a good yarn. You're very drawn to storytellers. I
2: do love time. my yarn weavers.
1: You like them and storytellers. Um, when you, uh, when, in fact, when you wrote uh, a mini episode of Wooden Overcoats for us, it was sort of uh, Eric. Uh, spinning a yarn and an anecdote or a story to Georgie—that's right, sort of, sort of happening. So that's very much a component of your writing. You also love criminals and conmen and and uh, and people who are a bit on the dicey side of life and sort of uh, who doesn't sort of storytellers? Well, indeed. So one of the things I thought is I would like you to to see you doing essentially Ocean's Eleven. Uh, much longer, like that sort of thing, an Ocean's mm. Eleven style, a con- but a constant series of heists and cons that get bigger and bigger and one inside the other and more and more complex until you can barely support itself, but then carries on <laughs> anyway. And I think it's right. exactly the sort of show which I'd love to see could never write too complex, too complex of my blood, mate. I'll say that, but I reckon you could do tremendously, tremendously well. Uh, and adjacent to that is a slightly different one. I also pitched to you. Uh, uh for your cogitation is i'd also have to see what you do with a period show and also mm. to that i don't know what period i'd in fact ask you if, if there is any period sort of historical period and geographical point which you're particularly drawn to like if
2: you And read, period
1: yeah yeah what sort of what sort of uh, sort of pe- historical period if you're asked to to write
2: yeah you know i've always been fascinated by The 1920s and 1930s, Mm. um, specifically in America, um, I got to direct a piece written by my uh, writing partner, the magnificent Sarah Mm Shackett, set in 19, I believe 1930 exactly, for our show Zero Hours, and that was a ton of fun, and it was all the things that I love about that period, kind of. The lingo and the fast talking and the double entendres, the prohibition, the sense of both incredible possibility and incredible restrictions, both kind of somehow going up at the same time. Um, I would love to tell I would love to do a story about stage magicians um, in the 20s and 30s. I think that and the rivalries between them, I think would be fantastic. I want to do the prestige, but kind of updated a little bit. Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and what should I what should I be uh, doing right now if I, if you if you're going to pitch me the impossible show that I have to somehow make work? What am I toying with?
2: I would love to see you, David, um, work on a incredibly fast paced comedy um, yeah. about newspapermen or about oh. newsmen. About I basically want you to write His Girl Friday, Girl Friday. the series.
1: Now, this, um, uh, I have been wanting to write a screwball comedy. Series. Forever. Wooden overcoats occasionally veers into the screwball, but, but doesn't stay. It early. sometimes
2: rises to the lofty heights of the screwball realm. Yes,
1: screwball comedy, which I think people sometimes I say uh, say screwball comedy too, and they think, oh, it means old-fashioned, like people falling over and slapstick. And they go, no, no, that is screwball comedy. Is, is 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 very high-powered, high tension, big personalities. The thing I love, yes. I mean, screwball comedy is my favourite cinematic genre. I Absolutely adore those films. I've wanted to update the genre. For, for many years now, it's the thing I'd most want to do, is, is a project of a, of a screwball comedy style. And one thing I particularly loved at the time watching that is, is those movies of the 30s and 40s, the screwball comedies often have the best roles for women in an era that didn't often give women very very good roles. Um, and there's also there's a hugely subversive quality about them, the social mores of, of screwball comedy, which I think would be tremendous. I think there's a huge sort of a relationship between... Um, Uh, uh, screwball sensibilities and and queer sensibilities, I would love to Mm -hmm. explore, absolutely love to explore in a new series. So, yeah, anything to do with that kind of style. Um, I would. I mean, I'd love to write something set in in sort of 1920s or 30s New York. Um, I I would desperately need to write work of writers who knew about how people in New York spoke rather than (laughs) me. But, you know, it's a sort of a, a British person just wandering in and just making it, getting it all wrong. I would
2: love that. Can be wrangled though. You can find those people. I have no doubt.
1: I I, I suppose. I mean, yeah. If if anyone is, if anyone listening has uh, wants uh, wants to commission you to do a screwball comedy, well, I would love to. And I'm damn sure that I would need Gabrielle's assistant to do it as well because I've. It's 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 it is the defining genre for me in terms of it being funny, but also deep in an uh, you know the the, the themes, the, the effervescent quality. Of screwball comedy, I've often tried to do it in my own work. I, I will try, and I will keep trying until I achieve it. Um, for our well, weekend, the moment the moment
2: you have that commission, you just sign. You just shine the Gabrielle signal in the sky, and I'll be there right away.
1: And, and and until that point comes, going to the last five minutes, um, we were asked future projects. What what did, what can we expect from you in the near to middle to distant future that you can vaguely talk about?
2: Uh, I can vaguely talk about a couple of things um, I am like I said working on some top secret material mm-hmm. um, but beyond that I'm also writing scripts on a freelance basis for a couple of shows mm-hmm. um, most of which I don't think have been announced just yet but they're going to be coming out soon so it should be it should not be too long before I... Um, before you have some new Gabrielle Urbina content out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also writing the scripts for an adaptation of a graphic novel called Gasolina uh, mm-hmm. for the good folks at Skybound and Audible um, and having a ball doing that right now. They're a great team and that should be out hopefully sometime in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, so look out for that. Uh, And beyond that, I'm toiling on a couple of new ideas of my own and trying to figure out what's a new thing that I'd like to do. Um, I'll tell you something that I'd love to do sometime in the near future, David. Uh, I would love to write a long-form audio piece, like something that is feature-length. Um, yeah. sized, yes. Yeah. Uh, I got to write two of those for Wolf 359, like two little audio movies. Yeah, I'd love to write another one. I would really, really like to do that sometime soon. Very much,
1: I'd love to, yeah. That's sort of creating a film, just basically what is a film, but for the medium. Yes. I, something I'd love to do as well. I could, that could be a screwball comedy. I'm trying to bring it back to that.
2: Um, yeah, what um, about yourself? What are you I, working on
1: at the moment? It's very much all steam ahead on Wooden Overcoat season four, the sadly Delayed. Season four that it was meant to be, but a, long awaited and long awaited. very much
2: and very much um, desperately looked forward to. I'm, I'm
1: certainly hoping that uh, all the
2: audience have forgotten what it was and <laughs> moved on. But
1: we we do have, I promise you, a fourth season of absolutely uh, terrific scripts from some wonderful writers, and I'm quite pleased with my own work on it too. But it was meant to be uh, recorded and released in 2020. Um, of course, things being as they were, it had to be delayed. We are hopefully recording. Fingers crossed. Um, in a couple of months' time, and we should be looking to release uh, a Halloween special this year for our, uh, the backers who helped. Yes. In the first place. Uh, yes. And also season four should be released in January 2022, all things being well, uh, 10 new episodes. In- hugely looking forward. I- I'm really, really excited about these stories. Beyond that, I believe I should have a couple more uh, uh, Doctor Whos, which I write for the good folks at Big Finish. They'll probably have got some various uh, – I've got a few of those in, in their bank somewhere, and a few of those I think are being released next year. Um, otherwise, I'm, uh, I'm, I am working on a, a new podcast show that I can't say very much about other than that. It's something that I've wanted to do for quite a, quite a while, uh, a new scripted mm-hmm. comedy drama for, uh, for a company which will be longer in terms of season length than anything I've done previously, a, a, a bigger project than anything I've done previously. I'm hugely looking forward uh, to getting uh, properly in, into that. Um, uh, I, I'm also uh, also hopefully going to be doing an adaptation of uh, a comedy mystery thriller. Again, I can't say what it is um, for an American mm. company because a lot of the projects I have at the moment, they're either sitcom or they're comedy, comedy drama, or they're kind of in the, the adventure thriller mold. Things like Uh the 39 steps, which is often done many times. It isn't the 39 steps, but things of that mold where you can have, here's your broad adventure, here's your storyline, and the tone is up to you. And for me, go, oh, brilliant, that's going to be screwball. Or that's going to be lots of bickering, but also lots of fun and excitement and danger along the way. I want to do far more adventure stuff. I want to do adventure, and I want to do comedy, and I want to do rollicking things that people are just jolly well entertained by. I think that's where I'm still trying to pitch, pitch my work and pitch myself, because um, I, I, I just want people. To, I just want to have a good time, really, have a, have a, have a good time. Um, I, I'm, I'm assuming at some point we're going to be uh,
2: cut off but you know, my, the my clock yes. The
0: time but has but we come we time has even. But we yes. haven't
2: even talked about Doctor Who yet Quick David we What are your haven't. 10 favorite <laughs> 11th Doctor <laughs> no. episodes
0: Our next panel is starting and we want to give our panelists a bit of a chance to talk This has been an absolute pleasure and we've had a lot of creators join as well for this session I think you have a lot of fans and also a lot of creator fans so this has been just an absolute true treat and if you joined late, um, you can re-listen to this live interview um, on the Storytelling Podcast Week channel. The episode will be up tomorrow. It's just been phenomenal. Um, so I'm going to read our brief outro. Thank you so much for joining us for this live stream. Thank you. The interview. Absolutely. With David K. Barnes of Wooden Overcoats and Gabrielle Urbina of Wolf 359. If you joined late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters, you can replay the program on the Storytelling Podcast Week. Storytelling Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience with Podbean Live, where podcasts come to life. For everyone listening, you can start your own live stream for free on Podbean. And to get your first 30 days of hosting for free, use the code STORY. Thank you again to David K. Barnes of Wooden Overcoats and Gabrielle Urbina of Wolf 359. Thank you all for joining us for this session, The Interview.